Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. This is the podcast that translates uh, President Trump, and he is still President Trump. It was stolen. The election was stolen. We'll talk about that later. Uh, We take a look at the current administration, and we address the existential threats to America. And one of them is um, uh, illegal uh, voting. And very serious. You know, we did focus on this, Claude, as I mentioned last time a couple of our shows leading up to the election, but I don't think enough attention was paid. We will uh, talk to John Hinderocker today about a whole range of things. He's one of the smartest people around. I think he's just a terrifically smart guy. Uh, He's uh, one of the founders of Powerline, president of the Center uh, of the American Experiment. Let me discuss a few things first. Um, Claude, we had a fair amount of reaction to Mrs. Bennett's rules, I think. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Everyone was happy that we did them again. Uh, and, you know, she had some different uh, uh, things for this year, specifically for COVID-19, which is which is fine. Uh, but, yeah, lots of positive responses to it. She was great. I mean, you heard the show. I did. One of the responses that was positive was from our old friend uh, Seth Liebson, mm-hmm. who invited her on his show. Oh, did he? His radio show, the Seth Liebson show. Look at that. And uh, I listened Phoenix. to that. Yeah, from mm-hmm. Phoenix, but you know he he's got an audience that goes around the country. He's, Absolutely. So he um, he had her on. I listened. It was good, and uh, he got a lot of interesting emails too about her <laughs> about her appearance. Um, one guy who uh, called about you remember the bread BMW bread the, as far bread, as the bread uh, meal water is the M the meal. Mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. remember what's for yeah. Yeah. She, she said she has no problem with the inner city kids on this. It's the suburb kids like her, like her own. <laughs> uh, but um, this guy called and he said, um, I'm left-handed. So do I make an adjustment? And Mrs. Bennett wrote back, um, the order of BMW depends not on handedness. <laughs> He's bold because I'm left-handed too, but I I didn't ask because I just assumed. You know, you, know, you, can't, yeah, that- <laughs> you can't move it around. No, of course not. Just no. you're lefty. You're, you're not a lefty, left-handed, I mean. So. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, yeah, the other, other thing the guy said is you did not mention, and I'm, I know your husband, and I mean, uh, is one allowed to have the football game on in the background, even if low? Mm-hmm. And um, Mrs. Bennett said, if you are a firm fan of that team. Okay. Mrs. Bennett will say, can you come down and talk to me? I say, I can't because I'm watching a game. What is it? Well, I say it's LSU, Alabama. She'll go, okay. But if I say it's Illinois State and Oklahoma A and M, she'll say, "What the hell? You, you have no interest." Well, it's still football, right? Exactly. But she'll say something sarcastic, like, "Well, oh yeah, you have a lot of interest in Oregon Normal versus Washington AT and T, or But anyway, her 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 view was, yes, you can have it on low in the background. Uh, if it's a team that really matters, and apparently this guy's a kind of insane Packers fan, so okay. Anyway. Well, you can you can find a way to make Detroit football matter to Packers fan. I mean, same division, so Detroit. Yeah, that's always. Why is that always such a depressing game? <laughs> is it because the good. Lions always lose? Yeah, it's good that it's the first one. You know, kind of get revved up, and you know, no one's really eating at that time for the most part. You know, it's just sneaking some stuff. You need something to do. It's a it's a good. First one. Well, Dallas hasn't been good for the last. I I took Dallas against the Washington, what they call the Washington football team. Washington football team, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the Washington football team kind of. You're a Dallas fan, right? I am. I am. I am. You know, I never thought that I would. um, They're awful. I never thought I'd reach a day where I said I'd miss Coach Jason Garrett coaching the team. I mean, Andy McCarthy is not. And Mike Nolan with the defense, not doing a good. I mean, they don't lack talent. 
Um, but I mean, you know, fourth and almost 20 at your own 30 and some change and you go for it and you do this weird end around when it's only a four point game. I'm still bitter about it. If you can't tell, I can I'll tell. stop. I'll stop now. Let's play. Let's talk college. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, let's take off our, our Buckeye fans. <laughs> uh, you know, for some reason, they keep putting the Ohio state, the Ohio state football team in the top four, even at number three. I don't know why mm-hmm. they almost mm-hmm. got beat by Indiana. No, I say, well, it's top 10 team. Well, why? You know, because they were going unbeaten in a very bad league. Mm-hmm. But uh, they almost lost to Indiana. But, you know, according to the rules of the Big Ten, they have to have played at least six games to be eligible for a Big Ten championship. And we're not sure if they're, they're not sure they'll play six daggone games. Right. <laughs> SEC will play 19 by that time. You know? <laughs> right. But uh, they'll, they'll, they'll get, find their way to get there. They'll change the rules for Ohio State. You know, they do. So, but um, I mean, I I think um, I mean I think they're good, and I think their offense is good, mm-hmm. and I think the quarterback Justin is, Fields, man, is great. Is great. Yeah. He's a great quarterback. But their defense, they gave up thirty points, so thirty five points to Indiana in the second half. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, let them go and then play Clemson again and get beat or Alabama <laughs> or Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame will beat them, and I'm not a big Notre Dame fan. Right, Notre Dame right. is good. They are. They seem good. really, really, really good this year. Before you move on to other things, just yes. I mean, we're recording yep. this on December 1st. Uh, if folks want to pick up the true uh, St. Nicholas, Why He Matters to Christmas by William J. Bennett, go to Amazon or just Google search it. You can pick up the book for your holiday pleasure. Because well, we're in this nice. yeah, nice. well, we're in this season right now where, yeah. you know, Manny's eight. And so he still believes in Santa Claus, but I feel he's a little skeptical, you know. And so when he asks the big questions like, come on, dad, level with me. What's going on? I plan to sit down with him and read to him this story. Well, it's a wonderful story yeah. about a saint. I mean, a guy who just uh, was born, well-born, and uh, just gave all his money away. And the original Christmas story is mm-hmm. uh, a man, and this is in, uh, what, fourth century. And there's a guy who has three daughters, and he's poor, doesn't have enough money for the dowry, and therefore they can't get married. And Nicholas hears about it, and he takes, uh, it takes, a, t- it takes some of his gold and puts it in a, a sock, uh, and throws it through the window into a shoe. Mm-hmm. Hello, sound familiar? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like the stocking. And uh, there's enough there. And he does it three times for each of the three girls. And um, that's uh, that's maybe the first act of, of St. Nicholas, and who becomes Santa Claus. And we tell the story in the book of the true St. Nicholas. And it's an interesting story because he's a real guy. Yeah, absolutely. And um, he was much revered. Uh, all the way up till the uh, 16th century, when those uh, Protestant friends of yours took over, <laughs> they smashed his statues. I, I mean, these were the original statue smashers. <laughs> I mean, I, I, oh, I hate no. to. No, I'm not going to collapse all of Protestantism into like you know people smashing Abe Lincoln. But, but they took took out the stained glass windows. They smashed. They didn't like the saints thing. They don't mm-hmm. like. Still don't like the saints thing. Right, yeah, they, we get weird about the saints. Get weird about that. Well, we get a little. Well, weird I grew too. up Catholic. I mean, I don't. I still honor the saints. But... Yeah, well, we get a little weird on the saints <laughs> thing too. Either. Kiss relics and stuff when I was right. in school. <laughs> That's weird. Wouldn't do that in COVID. Not COVID. No, 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 no. You can't. Is that a little chalice or something, or a little what's it called? Oh, someone will write me and say, "Bill, you should have known." It's called a ciborium or something. It's some Latin word. Mm-hmm. A little bone fragment from some saint in there. Little kids would light up, and you'd kiss the bone and you'd put a 
rub a dirty cloth on it for the next kid, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was pretty. It was pretty bad. <laughs> but I, you know, they say Nicholas, whatever. He was driven out of the public square and out of the out of the churches, but he uh, took refuge in people's homes and hearts and lives today as Santa Claus. But it's a great story about how this guy from the fourth century, you know, makes his way through Europe and Asia and name gets changed. And, uh, but you know, the basic thing uh, and the basic message is to give mm-hmm. without the expectation of getting anything in return. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that's what motivates you toward me this year to yes. give me something without any expectation. <laughs> oh, I guess I sort of messed that lesson up, didn't I? No, yeah. no, you made the point clear. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would say, I, you, you know, yeah, was it Franklin who said, uh, Franklin who, said, who disproved his own theory by saying, I'm working on the virtues, mm-hmm. and I think the one I've done the best in yes, is humility. <laughs> uh, not yet you haven't. Uh-huh. Not yet you haven't. Anyway, all right, those are our thoughts. Any other random thoughts before we uh, oh, get to yeah, talk? Oh, a very random thought. And so um, some mutual, I ran into some mutual friends of ours this past Thanksgiving week. Uh, I dropped off uh, some turkeys and and uh, non-perishable food items to our friends at St. Anne's. St. Um, Anne's and yes, maternity who knows care. you very well. Absolutely, they uh, take care of uh, at-risk teen moms and their kids. They take them in and help them with jobs. And they, they remember care. me there. Yeah, yeah, they remember you there. You know, you you are very generous to to, to St. Anne's, and um, I can't re- exactly remember how we tied all things together. But you know, when when I'm there, I usually get a, a letter or an email uh, in the few uh, a week or two afterwards asking how are you doing. I always let them know that you're doing fine. Uh, and so yeah, I was there this past Thanksgiving dropping off some stuff, and um, they, uh, they received it with grace as always. And I'm sure I'll get an email or a letter in the mail uh, from Sister Mary Bader, I think, who will yeah. ask, how's Dr. Bennett? <laughs> yeah, <it was laughs> I'll sister, let them know that you're doing good. Sister Josephine, who uh, I used to work with, and we used to go over there, and we'd try to make a gift. And uh, this was back in the gambling days, and I had a, I had a success and went and sent her a big check. And she said, what do we owe this? And I said, just call it a holy jackpot. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But she she's very funny. She's very tough and smart. And mm-hmm. She tried to get some money from the federal government, you know, on a charitable basis. And she got a letter back saying, you know, we we can't do this because it's it's Catholic institution. We don't give it to religious institution. They were wrong on that because they support Catholic hospitals. Mm-hmm. If you're doing a secular purpose, performing a secular service, mm-hmm. service which is doesn't matter whether you're religious or not, you're eligible for the funds. So the guy called back and said, you know, we made a mistake, but you could fix it up a little bit. She said, what, you mean it'd be better if I didn't call it St. Anne's Infant Maternity Home, if I called it Anne's Coffee Shop and Waffle House? <laughs> you know, I said, yeah, it'd probably be better for her, our liberal lawyers here. You know, that's the way that stuff works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you're there. And you do, yeah. you were doing your drop-offs at a lot of places, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Drove around, dropped some stuff off. And I'll be sure to check on Sister Josephine. Last I heard, she's, I think, in Mount Airy at a retirement yeah, conference. Yeah, yeah. Like that. she's yeah. a great She's a great one. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're reminding me I'm making my Christmas gift list here. So okay. we'll do another St. Anne's thing here along sure, the way. Sure. That's great. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show.
It's time to jump in with John Hinderocker. He's one of the founders of Powerline. He's the president of the Center of the American Experiment. John, thanks for your time today. Yeah, hi, Bill. How are you doing? Doing well. I've digested a lot of Hinderocker columns here, so I'll tell you where I am. I woke up this morning, go through Real Clear Politics, go to Powerline. Real Clear Politics, transcript of a hearing in Pennsylvania. You can guess what's coming. Mr. Giuliani, and that's a total of 604,000 votes in 90 minutes that occurred in the middle of the night, right? Mr. Waldron, who was the witness, yes. The chart shows 337 votes in that period of time. Uh, and when you look at this entire curve with all these spikes, can you calculate how much of a vote accounted for for Biden and how much for Trump? Witness close to 600,000. Our figures were about 570,000. Uh, that all these spikes represent over time. How many for Biden? It's 570,000. How many for Trump? 3,200. Okay, that's the punchline. We've heard this a lot in Pennsylvania from witnesses. We've heard this in other states. I was watching some of the Arizona hearings yesterday, and I think it's indisputable, tell me, John, that there, that election counting was stopped in several states, battleground states, on election night, and that these tranches of votes came in and that in a lot of them, the vote for Biden was way disproportionate to what it had been up to that time. Is that a fair statement of things that are true? I believe that's right, Bill. I mean, I think there are at least four states where that happened. And intriguingly, I think in all four states, it happened in the middle of the night. You know, in several states, accounting allegedly stopped for a period of, you know, four or five hours. And uh, and yet there are reports that the counting didn't actually stop, that, that Democrats remained in the in the in the buildings where the counting was going on and um, and then we see these huge spikes with what seemed to be highly improbable ratios of you know <laughs> you know 95% or 98% or something like that you know votes for for Joe Biden and uh, i haven't seen anyone really explain you know or g- give no. a good kind of natural explanation for how that happened have you bill no, and I have not seen these numbers denied. I mean, quibbling here and there, but uh, people have said, yeah, yeah, no, no, they, they haven't argued that. Uh, and I haven't heard it explained. Uh, the other thing I haven't seen is, except for a couple of uh, press groups, uh, which are regarded on the wacky fringe, fairly or unfairly, I think unfairly, but I haven't, I haven't seen that some enterprising reporter dig into this in the New York Times or the Washington Post or the oh, Minneapolis no. Star Tribune at all. <laughs> Don't hold your breath waiting for that one, Bill. There are no reporters that want to dig into this story. You know, um, if, if, if these reports are true, and as you and I are both saying, we haven't seen anyone really try to deny them or even explain them. The closest thing I've seen to an explanation is people pointing out that uh, at some point they start counting mail-in ballots, or, or, or it might make sense that a whole bunch of mail-in ballots would be counted and reported. I'm not sure that's true, that 130,000 all pop up at the same moment. I don't know. But And, and the one theory I've heard expressed is that the Democrats were encouraging their voters to vote by mail. And Republicans generally were encouraging their voters to show up in person. And so maybe if you had 150 mail in 150,000 mail in votes in a row, you know, maybe they would be heavily for Joe, uh, Joe Biden. That's the closest I've seen to anybody trying to explain what happened here. But the point I was going to. But make- not that close. I want to come back to that. Not, not that close. I mean, you got an election that's going 52, 48. 
one way or the other. And then all of a sudden you get this, this example from Pennsylvania and it's 98% to 2%. Right. Um, and they're all on. like that, Bill. It's not only that one in Pennsylvania. I think there are at least four states where these midnight or early morning dumps took place. And you're absolutely right. And none of them are like, you know, and maybe instead of 5248, they might have been, well, even 6040. You know, yeah, you can say, right. well, a mail in sure. balance might have been 6040 for my, but they're not 98 to two or 96 to four. You know, that's ridiculous. And, and so, and so, the thing I puzzle over a little bit, Bill, is if 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 this is if there is something nefarious going on here, and as we go along, there's other areas where voter fraud took place or irregularities took place, but but I but I think these these big dumps are the ones that have got the numbers that at least in principle you could say, well, look, if that's if that if these are fake numbers, that would flip the state, you know. And and um, and and if it's true that 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 there's some manipulation going on behind these big ballot dumps, a couple of things would have to be true. Number one, there have to be um, you ought to be able to track this back to, to ballots. You know, you can't you can't just show up on a computer, you know, with one hundred and sixty thousand alleged votes. Can you? I mean, I mean, the most you know, the, 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 the most inadequate audit ought to, ought to disclose whether, whether there were in fact 160,000, you know, uh, ballots that, that, that got counted at, at that time and ought to be able to, you know, at least make the numbers match up. You shouldn't have just an electronic total that's got hundreds of thousands of votes that you can't find anywhere else in the system. That's point yeah. number one. And again, I haven't seen anybody really get to the bottom of that and say, yeah, here's that 160,000 votes. Here they are, you know, and we can we can go back and we can recount them or, or yeah. whatever. And the second thing, Bill, is that if there's something nefarious going on here, it was done by somebody, you yes, know, by yes, yes. by some some small group of people who had the access, who had the wherewithal to to fake if, if this theory is correct. I'm not saying it is, but if it is correct. There's some little group of, I don't know, 20 or 30 people spread out across four or five states who had access, who had opportunity, who had the know-how, and that little group of people carried out the biggest crime in American history. Now, I think, I think if, if we're going to really take this kind of theory seriously, somebody's got to start pointing a finger. Somebody's got to start trying to figure out who did this? You know, if this really happened, you know, who had the access, who had the opportunity, who had the motivation? And until you can kind of put a face on it and start asking some hard questions of some actual human beings, instead of just, you know, instead of just looking at numbers, I think it's very difficult okay. to, to get very far. And, and the fundamental problem, Bill, is we don't have any time. That, that, that's, that's why I'm as pessimistic as I am. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you, I think you answered the next question I had, which is you can go forward in a court of law with numbers like this, I, I would imagine, uh, as prima facie evidence, right? As circumstantial evidence. Uh, it's not going to prove anything, but it could be of interest. But to make the case, I mean, I was going to ask you, if it seems so plausible to believe that this thing was fixed and these numbers, massive numbers, just got to be wrong, just uh, just doesn't pass the smell test. Why can't you prevail in court? You can't prevail in court because you need something else other than 
this prima facie evidence. I'm not even sure I'm calling it the right thing. Well, let me put it this way, Bill. No, I think you're asking an excellent question. It's one a lot of people wonder about. You know, I spent my whole life in court, as you know. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and one thing about litigation is it's not fast. You know, it's not yeah, fast. Yeah. And we talk a little bit about, about Bush versus Gore and, and why that case is able to get resolved by December 10th, 2000, how different that situation was. But, but the one thing that all of us should know about litigation is it's, it's not fast. You, you can't measure it in, in, in days or even weeks. So I would put it this way, Bill. If, if I were able to reassemble one of my old litigation teams and given a modest budget of, say, $10 million, and if I had subpoena power in a year and a half, which was what I always had, you know, when I was doing civil litigation, that's what I had. I had a team, I had a budget, I had subpoena power, which is absolutely critical, and I had a year and a half to do my discovery. And, and if, you cre- if you created those conditions now, give me a team, give me a budget, give me subpoena power and give me That's a year and a half and assign me a state, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Georgia, I'll answer these questions. You know, a, a, That's great. a, a yeah. good litigation team, you give them time and subpoena power, we'd get the answers to these questions. Problem is we, we, we don't have time and, and we don't at the stage that we're at and the timing that we have, you don't have subpoena power either. So your gut tell you it was it was stolen though, or use whatever. Well, I, I'll put it this way, Bill. I don't know what to make of these of these big vote dumps. I, I still haven't seen, as, as we discussed, a coherent explanation for them. There are multiple kinds of irregularity going on here. Um, you know, there, there, there's a guy who has I can't say his name offhand. I could look it up, but. You know, he's done some analysis that's that's voter by voter, you know, and he's identified a whole bunch of people in these key states who had moved away from those states. So thousands of people who had moved away from those states, registered to vote in a different state, did vote in in a different state, but then absentee voted in Arizona, Georgia, et cetera. That is a pretty common way of, of, of committing voter fraud by voting twice. So we know, we know that happened, um, you know, to a considerable extent. Another thing that we know happened is that in a number of states, including my state, Minnesota, uh, because of collusive litigation, which is completely corrupt, completely corrupt collusive litigation, important safeguards were done away with. So in Minnesota, the law says that absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, have to be witnessed, you know, by another person who verifies the signature. Well, through a collusive lawsuit, that requirement of a witness signature got eliminated for this election. And then in our state, the same thing happened in many states. And then uh, the, the state mailed out uh, ballot applications to everyone on the registered voter list. Well, the registered voter list, the cleanup of the registered voter list runs years behind. It's very poor quality. And so many thousands of ballots went out to people who either don't exist, never existed in some cases, who have died or have moved to a different state. Many, many thousands of those ballot applications went out. And if you wanted to vote illegally, if one of them came to your house, you know, or you got your hands on it one way or another, 
um, you can fill out that ballot application and just check a box that says, I don't have either a driver's license or a social security number. Just check that box and they'll give you a ballot, you know, and you fill out that ballot for Joe Biden and you sign whatever name, you know, is on the ballot application form, not yours, but, you know, some other person's and send it in. That'll never get caught. You didn't have to witness it. Nothing. It'll never get caught. So those votes, we have no idea how many there were. We'll never know how many they were. No. They all got counted. So that's another kind of, of fraud. And then you, you see the kinds of things where in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Detroit, they wouldn't let the Republican poll watchers in to observe the counting of the mail-in ballots in, in clear violation of state law. They just broke the law. They locked the doors, said no Republicans allowed here. So the Republican poll watchers had to go to court to get an order requiring that they be admitted to the building. So they got admitted to the building, but then they got put behind a barrier where they couldn't see anything. Well, why do you do that? You don't do that because you're going to count the votes honestly, right? You only yep, do that yep. because you're going to cheat. So we have that kind of evidence, right? And so, and so at this point, I think all we can really do, Bill, is, is speculate. We, nobody knows, you know, the answer. God knows, right? But, if, but I, I, I believe, given everything we've seen, that if you had perfect knowledge and only legal voters voted properly and they all only voted once, and we count the ballots that way, I think that Trump probably won this election. Just backtrack a couple of things you said. You said, you know, a few people could have been involved in these machinations. Uh, just, just a small point. I've heard people say there must have been a lot of people. If there was this much going on, there must have been a lot of people involved, which is true. You think it could have been done by a few people? Well, I think it depends what you're talking about. I, when I said a few people, I was thinking about these midnight dumps, you know, yes. the 130,000 okay. okay. ballots for Joe Biden, 12 ballots for Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah sure, sure. That, uh, you don't need 100 people to do that. You know, you need one, yeah. two, three, four, five of, of the right people who have the access, you know, who, who, okay. who have the know-how. I, I, in each state, or may, maybe, maybe, maybe it's hacking. You know, maybe the same three people can hack into systems in five states. I, I don't understand how that gets done. But that's but what, what I was talking about, being done by a small group. Okay, but if it's a small group or a large group... To, to prevail in court, it would be very helpful to have one of these people come forward, if you will, as a witness. And Absolutely. there hasn't been any. Yes, that's exactly right, Bill. What we really need is, 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 um, is an insider. You know, if, if one person would come forward and say, look, I was part of the group that did this. Here's what we did. Here's how we did yeah. it. And then you could, and then you could, you know, there'd be enough information there that you could check and show that he's telling the truth. That's probably the one thing that could blow this wide open. Okay. That hasn't happened, at least to date. Uh, it's a great point you make about the litigation team, teams you've assembled in the past, what you need. And you need a team, you need a little bu budget, and you need time. And I think that's, that's, that's the critical one. Let's, I, I, don't want to pull, I want to get into some of your other columns and other topics, but this is so interesting. And it is, if it occurred, the worst thing to happen. I, I guess this is worse than the FBI thing. You know, I mean, worse was Lear say it's not the worst as long as you can say this is the worst. But yeah. I mean, here, here we go. But let's move to Georgia. Seems to me a lot of us are in a difficult position here of saying, 
oh my gosh, all this fraud that took place. And I guess it took place in Georgia. So I noticed that Ronna McDaniel, who's the chairman of the RNC, I should say, said pe- people were questioning her in a tough way, saying, why should we vote? This thing's already cooked for the Democrats. I thought she had a pretty good answer. So if you want to be sure that the Democrats win this, don't vote. But, you know, if a lot of people are suspicious that this thing is already wired, does that discourage them from going out and voting? And also the president's now weighing in about the governor of Georgia and the secretary of state. And I'm just wondering what the effect of this is in Georgia uh, in terms of discouraging people to vote. Meanwhile, a single a single song, a single theme on the Democrat side. Go vote. We can win this thing. Well, I hope people don't get discouraged. I mean, that would be an awful, like, in my view, kind of petty attitude to take toward I agree, a I agree, yeah. Election. I don't think very many people are going to, you know, turn their noses up and say, well, you know, I'm not going to vote because it's because it's already rigged. Um, but there was this announcement of the having found some huge number of absentee ballots in Georgia, you know. Just yeah. just the other day. Yeah. Here we go again, you know. No, that's right. And, and by the way, Bill, this is a digression. But what needs to come out of this is is competent election procedures all across the country. Yeah. You know, people's confidence in our elections is going to be badly shaken by what happened this year. That's not all bad. You know, I mean, I think confidence deserves to be shaken. And I think um, if there's a silver lining here, maybe going forward, there'll be enough public demand for for election security that we actually get more uh, more reliable safeguards. The problem, of course, is that we have one of our major parties that doesn't want ballot security. You know, they, they right. election fraud as you know, a part of their of their strategy. Well, back to Georgia, though. Back but, to- but, but, but let's talk about that just for a second, because I, I did want to raise this. Is there, do you know Harmeet Dillon? You know, the lawyer, yeah. Harmeet Dillon. She's a very smart lawyer, very smart right. lady. She said, you know, I kind of fault Republicans here, because when people were setting up all these systems and doing all this stuff, Democrats were all over it. A lot of Republicans were it. Because Republicans, you know, just like at the founding, they want to go back to their farms and their places and, 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 and do their jobs. Democrats love this stuff. And she said, I kind of fault the, the party and operatives at the local level for not paying sufficient attention to these things beforehand, rather than going forward. As you said, we need to do it in the future. I, I don't know if that's yeah. true. You I don't know. know. I don't know. problem, Bill, and I can't really explain it. Why is it that it seems like it's the Democrats who always want to get involved in neighborhood politics, local politics? Because they like government. Yeah, they like government. They run for the school board. They like know. government, yeah. You know, they, they get involved in these. They uh, like to tell people what to do and have it their way, and we'd like to just basically be left alone. Yeah, and, and I mean, tend to have different pursuits, but 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 that has real consequences, and we're seeing them in a, in a lot of what was Goes on in the elections. So, so on paper, I you know I don't think that a large number of people on our side of the fence, Bill, are going to stay home in Georgia. I certainly hope. Okay. Okay. On paper, I would say that the Republicans should be in very good shape in Georgia for several reasons. Number one, in both of those Senate races, there were significantly more Republican votes cast than Democrat votes cast. The Democrat won the plurality in, in Leffler's race, but that was just because, you know, she had a challenger, a Republican challenger. But if you add the Republican votes in both races, they significantly outnumbered the Democrat votes. So the Democrats have got to, you know, make ground. They got to climb out of the hole. Second thing is that there are a lot of people, especially independents, who like divided government. Mm-hmm. 
And I used to think that was stupid, Bill. Most of my life, I always thought. Me too. I'm exactly <laughs> with you. What do we want the divided government for? We want to get things done. No, we don't. Yeah, no, that's exactly yeah, what I used to think. Well, you know, pick a pick a philosophy and vote for it. It's, why would you think I want a president of one party and a Congress of the other? That's just dumb. Well, I don't I don't believe that anymore. I think the people that like divided government, it, it, you know, are, it's not so silly. I think it was Stanton Evans, who was uh, Steve Hayward's old mentor, who used to say that uh, that uh, uh, gridlock is the next best thing to constitutional government. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll take it one way. I'll take divided government when the Democrats are there. So so I think there are quite a few independents who are going to yeah. look at the landscape and say, well, look, it looks like Joe Biden's going to be the next president. The last thing I want is a Democrat president, House, and now Senate. Oh, I want them yes, checked. Yeah. And so I think some independents on that basis are going to come out and vote for the Republicans. And then the third thing, Bill, is that the eyes of the world are going to be on Georgia. And, and right. I, I'm, I'm assuming that that means that there won't be a lot of voter fraud. Now, you know, maybe they can do it anyway, I, but I assume that the Republicans are going to be crawling all over this, you know, with their hope so. And so you put those three things together and on paper, you know, I, I'm optimistic. I would hope so. But, you know, but we didn't, I don't know if I'm talking about the Republicans or the operatives or the country, but a lot of people didn't scream when, you know, they saw all these facts in front of them, like these late night huge tranches for Biden, vote counting stopping in these states. I mean, I don't know what you regard as the most uh, telling or persuasive of the anomalies, but there are a lot of anomalies where that's really made its way back into our vocabulary. But are they, you know, the, the down ballots going to Republicans at local levels and then the House of Representatives, and the Senate, you know, looks pretty good certainly not a blue wave. Um, these bellwether counties, the statistical anomalies we've been talking about, is, there's just a lot there. And yet people didn't seem to scream about it, at least not a lot of people. Some people, a lot of Trump voters are very unhappy. I'm very unhappy. But um, I, I don't know. I, you know, we do, I, a lot of the country is just prepared to live with it and say, you know, let's let's move on. I mean, I've felt that pressure. I felt that pressure so much that on Fox the other day, I said, all right, I'm not going to keep talking about it, but I am going to keep believing it. You know, Galileo, right? Yet it moves, right? <laughs> the earth moves. Uh, I'm not going to act like one of these Japanese soldiers, but I'm going to believe like one of those Japanese soldiers. But uh, I don't well, know. One thing going on there. We, one have thing to give a, there. we have to give a damn about this. We have to react. Go ahead, sir. Well, we do. I mean, there's a couple of things. Number one, if you look at the polls, a lot of people are skeptical about this election result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, including yeah. a lot of Democrats. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, 30% of Democrats or some such number are suspicious. Second thing, uh, social media. You know, we're you're, the way in which a, the largest number of people, you know, talk talk about politics is on social media, especially Facebook. And, you know, they've banned talk about voter fraud. And I think that's one of the reasons why it feels like so many people are willing to just move on. Yeah. The place where they would most likely express themselves is being shut off. And the major media not paying attention to it as well. Right. Yeah, it's all about President-elect Biden and, and his transition team and his cabinet appointees and so on. The last thing, you know, Bill, do you, I'm so old, I can remember when there was such a thing as investigative journalism. Yeah. When, when, when reporters knew how to do arcane things like, you know, buy a plane ticket, go somewhere, 
actually investigate something, talk to people, do some research, you know, pound the pavement. My Lord. I mean, that is such a thing of the past. Yeah, I remember Bob Novak on TV saying, you know, the voters of Iowa said, blah, 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 blah. And whoever was uh, next to him said, well, how the heck do you know? He said, I was in Iowa. I talked to people. <laughs> right. You were in Iowa? And yeah, I said, I, I didn't know people still did that. Right. Might have gone with the death of Bob Novak, you know, uh, that uh, gumshoe reporting, right? Gumshoe reporter. Right. And, and you're a little bad in interviewing people. No, I agree with you. Let's talk about uh, another one of your columns here. Um, Biden's foreign policy retreads. Uh, before we get to the retread issue, and there are obviously a lot of retreads, is this going to be a more centrist or center left administration rather than the leftist government that uh, Republicans were advertising it would be? Well, I think it would like to be a leftist government. The question is, how much of that is it going to be able to to pull off? Remember when Barack I think Obama Biden himself wants to have a leftist government, if you think, think there is a Biden himself. At this stage of his life, Biden's always been an opportunist. You know, you can go back and find yeah, quotes yeah, where Biden, yeah. Biden was sounding like a, a moderate or even a reactionary a few decades ago. I don't think Biden has ever had a, a political philosophy. I think he blows with the wind. And I think at this stage of his life, he's not much of a factor. You know, I, I think that the people around him, you know, the people who now are running the Democratic Party want it to be as, I'll put it this way, as leftist as it can, as it can be. But you remember when, when Barack Obama had a supermajority in the Senate for a while and, and they passed Obamacare, you know, in that, in that brief window. And if I remember correctly, they don't have anything like that now. You know, even if they won the Georgia races, <clears throat> Joe Manchin would be holding the cards in the Senate. And he's not going for the Green New Deal. You know, you believe, you believe him, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do, too. I've had a lot of listeners say, why do you believe him? I saw him and he said, I'm not going for the Green New Deal. I'm not going for the end of the filibuster. I'm not going right. for I believe him. Other Democrats, I I hear Kristen Sinema talked about as somebody who may not uh, go Uh, off the cliff, you know, to to the left, and and votes in the House are going to be close. I mean, Republicans keep picking up House seats. I know it's going to be two ten anyway, isn't it? It's going to be very tenuous. And I mean, and, and and do you know? I'm interrupting you again. I'm sorry, but I'm just curious. People have, have highlighted these Republican women, as I have. I'm calling them. I'm calling them the Our Squad, Our Squad, yeah, or, or Our or Our Squad, to take them on. But there are enough Democrats, it seems to me, in the middle to maybe make it difficult for the Democrats to get their majority on a lot of important, divisive votes. I think you're right. I think it depends what we're talking about. But Democrats uh, who have won narrowly in swing districts that have got important economic interests at stake, um, you know, I, I don't think they're going to lemming-like uh, vote with Pelosi 100%. Let's take so an, I, say open borders. Let's say some proposal to open the borders, just let anybody in who wants to. Are there enough Democrats in the House to vote against that to defeat that? I, I think it's probably so. I think so. And I don't think they could get it through the Senate either. Certainly, I'll put it this way, they certainly couldn't get it through the Senate without abolishing the filibuster. I don't think they can abolish the filibuster. Yeah, because you think that means that their radical left wing stuff really is all dead on arrival. I'll tell you something else, Bill. Even if it's 50-50? Well, I mean, the first thing they've got to do, if they want to admit new states, you know, uh, have the Green New Deal, blah, 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 the whole radical agenda, pack the Supreme Court, 
they can't do any of that as long as the filibuster is in place. So the first vote that Chuck Schumer has got to take is to abolish the filibuster. I don't think, even if they win the two seats in Georgia, I don't think they win that vote. And if they don't win that vote, and Joe Manchin has said that he won't vote for it, and I, be, I believe him, you know, we'll see. And there may be others. So if they don't win that vote, they can't get anything through the Senate except a budget. You know, there's a few things that the filibuster doesn't apply to, judicial nominations. But, but you know, things like open borders, Green New Deal, new states, you know, packing the Supreme Court. They can't get any of that stuff through unless they can break the filibuster. But here's another element. You mentioned immigration, Bill. One of the most interesting things in this last election that I'm sure came as a surprise to the Democrats is the way President Trump dominated Hispanic voters uh, in the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. 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 What's that that telling us? No, that's right. That's, that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic on that front, even with a 50, 50 Senate uh, and a president uh, and a president Biden, people are predicting just last point on this, a, major rift developing between the left the left part of the brain and the Democrat Party and the center left part of the brain. Do you see that? Well, I think the rift is there. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see who actually joins the left side of that rift. I mean, Antifa mm-hmm. is there, BLM is there, uh, you know, the crackpots on Twitter, you know, they're already going after Biden over what they see as moderate, you know, uh, nominations that are being uh, brooded about. I think that that we're talking about maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 percent of the Democratic Party there. Yeah, okay. The vast majority of the Democratic Party is going to be understanding of Joe Biden's and Chuck Schumer's and Nancy Pelosi's position. And I think their attitude is going to be, we want to go full socialist uh, or however they want to put it. That's how I would put it. Uh, but for now, we'll take the quarter loaf. Yeah, they, okay. we'll take what we can get. So I, I, I don't think there's going to be a, a, a massive abandonment of, of the Biden administration by Democrats. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm looking to the House and seeing some of these people rebelling against the leftist turn. And with this election, you know, uh, there were obviously also a number of races that were close that went to Democrats. And some of those people may be thinking about two years hence and wanting yeah. to be careful in their, in their votes. Well, one big difference now, you know, um, you, you know, I think the Republicans will take the House in 2022. Uh, I think they probably will extend their hold on the Senate or regain the Senate if they lose it in 2022. And so, you know, when you, when you look at the longer view of a prospective Biden administration, he's not going to have a two-year period. You know, the best he's going to do, I think, is the two-year right period. Now. Looking at him right now, and that's not great. And from there on, it probably gets worse. Let's shift gears. Uh, you wrote so many interesting things. Tell this audience about uh, Larvita McFarquhar. Uh, oh, gosh. And uh, bring in your governor, if you'd like, Minnesota governor, into the discussion. Bill, this is a great story. Larvita McFarquhar is a uh, young woman uh, she's a single mother. She, she's black. Um, she lives in a little town that I'd never heard of called Lind, Minnesota, L-Y-N-D, in the southwestern corner of the state, a town of fewer than 500 people. 
And she owns a bar and restaurant there that's surprisingly good sized and looks kind of nice when you look at like a Facebook video of it. It's called Haven's Garden. And Larvita uh, is a Christian. She um, has held uh, or used or, or opened up her um, restaurant bar called Haven's Garden to non-denominational uh, church services. And uh, she's a bit of an activist. She has a couple of daughters. Uh, and, um, and she announced on Facebook uh, a week or two ago that on Friday night, the day after Thanksgiving, she was going to open up her, her establishment, Haven's Garden, in defiance of a, an order that came down from Governor Tim Walls oh, two weeks ago or so, two, three weeks ago, closing all of the bars and restaurants, along with gyms and some other things, uh, and, and, and banning all youth sports across the state of Minnesota. And she believes that order is unconstitutional. I think she's right, personally. And, and she said, I'm going to be open for business. And then she got a letter threatening her with a $25,000 fine, threatening to take away her food and liquor licenses, uh, and threatening anyone who showed up at her establishment with a $1,000 fine. She did another short you know, Facebook post uh, announcing this and, and warning anybody who was thinking about coming that you might, you, you've been threatened with fines. I just want you to know they're, they're threatening to fine you $1,000. But I'm going to be open. I think it's my God-given right as an American to try to run my business. And uh, we have a government that doesn't do anything about hardcore criminals. You know, they're running loose all across the state and they're cracking down on honest yeah. small business people. And I think it's my right. I'm going to open up. And there's a little news organization that I'm involved with a little bit called Alpha News. And, and they interviewed Larvita and ran a little story about her. I picked it up on Powerline, ran a story about her. Uh, put up a couple, a couple of these Facebook videos, encourage people to show up. The Daily Signal then picked it up from my post. And then the Daily Mail picked it up. <laughs> and, you know, the Daily Mail bill is like, I don't know, the first or second or third most widely read news outlet in on the internet. You know, they're, yeah. they're out, of, uh, out of London, uh, I guess, but they follow American news quite closely. So the Daily Mail had a story on Larvita McFarquhar and her, her little business in this town of 488 people in southwestern Minnesota. And, um, and so she did it. She opened her establishment. She posted a video on Facebook, just a short little video. Nice crowd, very mellow, people hanging out, eating, sipping beers, you know, a rural, a rural Minnesota crowd. And uh, the police didn't bust the joint. Um, and so far, at least, um, you know, she hasn't hasn't been sanctioned, but she, she poses a real problem to the authorities here in Minnesota, because if they crack down on her, she's got a lot of support. I mean, her case has become famous. I can tell you right now, I'm going to offer her free legal assistance, not by mm -hmm. me, because I'm, I'm out of that business, but I'm on the board of, a, of, a, of a, the Upper Midwest Law Center, uh, which is a pro bono conservative uh, law firm. Um, to which my organization subleases space uh, and they'll represent her for free and, and she'll get a GoFundMe going. She's going to be hard to crack down on. And at the same time, if the authorities don't try to put her out of business, it's going to be hard for them to crack down on anybody else because, you know, people know about what, about her. So it's a really interesting challenge that's being uh, posed to 
what I think is just an astonishing. Yeah. Reason. Yeah. What uh, other places in Minnesota uh, taking and following her lead, doing the same? Is she giving courage to others? I, not that I know of, Bill. Okay. I mean, maybe one or two here and there hasn't yet become, a, you know, any kind of a widespread movement. But there's a lot simmering under the surface. I mean, for example, Bill, you know, the state of Minnesota's own figures, their own health department numbers say that to the extent they've been able to track infections down and find a source for them, only 1.7%. Yeah originated in bars or restaurants, 1.7%. Well, now they're also closing down all the gyms and health clubs. Well, there, the percentage is like, you know, it's a zero point, you know, it's nothing, Uh, 0.2 or something. And so the guy who runs the biggest chain of health clubs, gyms in Minnesota and some other states, has gotten involved here. He sent an email to all their members. You know, he's gone public. He's, He's asked to see data. You know, what? on what do you base this order? And our governor, Dim Tim Walls, I call Dim him. Dim Tim, yeah. I, he responded with, with, with a quote, one of the, in my opinion, one of the dumbest things ever said by a public official. And after, after eight months of assuring everybody he's following the science, he's taking where the data leads him, you know, it's all about the science. Yeah. But, you know, it's complete BS. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Now he says, quote, it's not about statistics. It's not about numbers. It's about neighborliness. Yeah. You know, whatever yeah. that means. Whatever that means. Yeah. Apparently not neighborly, you know, to go to the gym. So there's, and my own organization is cranking up another, this is the third campaign we've done now to push back against what I think are illegal orders by our state's governor. Yep. yep. We're collecting petition signatures, and we've got a big online campaign that's launching just today, in fact. So we'll see what happens. All right. Is it possible? I want to shift to Minneapolis from uh, Lynn, but is it possible that they didn't cite her in Lynn because they have defunded the police and there's no police there to deliver a citation? (laughs) Well, I think the bigger problem they have in greater Minnesota, I mean, the the police in in Minneapolis have got their hands full. They ain't going down to, I mean, Linda's a long way away. I mean, I, 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 I thought about going to this thing myself. My wife and I, it's 248 miles from. Yeah. Ohio. Yeah. It's a long way. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it, this is, this is deep in the countryside. One problem they've had though, is that a number of sheriffs around the state, yeah. not in the urban area, but around the state has said they won't enforce these orders. Right. Right. They've taken an oath to uphold the constitution. They just won't enforce them. And so that, that's a, a real problem. But update us on the Minneapolis situation, the defund the police. And the By the way, can I add it? one more comment? Yeah, absolutely. Bill, and I, I don't want to, I don't, don't want to overstate this, but it's just kind of interesting to me. Here's Larvita. You know, she's black. You know, she's a young woman, single mother. Yeah. And she talks about, you know, her children need to learn how to fight. And yeah. who's, who's, if I'm afraid to teach them, who will? You know, yeah, I don't want to teach my children to knuckle under to. What I think is illegal action. Here she is. She owns a small business in a little town of 488 people in southwestern Minnesota. I can tell you, Bill, <laughs> her clientele is white. Okay, but that's who that's who lives in that yeah. in that part of the world. Okay, and she has total support, you know, from the people. Of in course, this of and course. she's got huge support from people across Minnesota and especially Greater Minnesota, and that's a population that is overwhelmingly. Over 
overwhelmingly white, you know. And so all these people that are supporting her, that have been supporting her business all these years, her her, her patrons or her clientele, you know, they, these are all the deplorables. You know, these are people right, that right. her, her bar, her restaurant, you know, and pickup trucks. You know, and these are the people that if we're to if we, if we're to listen to the liberals are all, you know, racists and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just kind of an interesting little example of how people actually live in the countryside. And it's oh. totally different from, you know, the stereotypes that the that the left, you know, tries to portray. But take us to Minneapolis, if you will, and update us on the well, I wrote I wrote an article for the current issue, the upcoming issue of the American Spectator. And I think the title is can Minneapolis survive? And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tenuous situation. Really? Really? Uh, oh yeah. It's a tenuous situation. You know, Minneapolis has overcome some obstacles, you know, for a long time, um, because it's had a good reputation. The twin cities have had a good reputation as a metropolitan area for uh, for having clean government, for being relatively crime-free, for being relatively prosperous with an engaged, high-quality business community. You know, that's been the image of, of Minneapolis and St. Paul for the last century. Well, that image is going up in smoke. What's happening now is we have a huge increase in crime, including violent crime, we have gunshots being heard, you know, all across the city of Minneapolis, to a lesser extent, St. Paul, carjackings. I mean, I, I've lived in this place for 46 years now. The word carjacking <laughs> has never been part yeah. of the vocabulary. All of a sudden it is. There was an incident uh, just three or four days ago in, in an area of South Minneapolis, a prosperous area called Tangletown, which is where I used to live. Right. I lived there until I moved to the suburbs now some years ago. But I, I it was it's a nice part of town. And uh, a couple of thugs, a couple of youths, as they're described, um, pulled their car over and, and blocked a vehicle that was at, sitting at the curb that was being driven by someone who's described as a housekeeper. And I think that means probably, a you know, a cleaning lady, a house cleaner who was uh, about to get out and, and, and go to the house where she was working. And these two so-called youths are caught on camera. And I think it's like a ring camera from across the street. They get out of their car and they go over to her car and they accost her. And one of them points a gun at her. And you, there's a picture that we put up of this. You see the guy, you know, holding the gun out, pointing it at the, this woman who's driving her car. And they tell her to get out of the car. They're going to steal her car. She refuses to do it. The guy shoots three times into the car. Doesn't, doesn't hit the woman, but he shoots three times into her car. And they then, the youths then panic because, you know, you, you don't want to start firing a gun and then wait around too long. So they get back into their car and drive away. She chases them. <laughs> this woman really? Yeah. This one, she doesn't catch him, but she deserves a medal. You know, she refused to give her car up. Bless her. She heart. may be Larvina's cousin or something. She's yeah, a fighter. Yeah. 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 yeah I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked, you know. But this kind of thing, you know, this is shocking to crazy, people. Crazy, crazy, crazy. So, and, you know, there's a lawsuit going on, again, being handled by the Upper Midwest Law Center, same organization I mentioned. And it's, it's, it's a bunch of black residents of North Minneapolis, which is a heavily black part of that city. And they're suing the city of Minneapolis, alleging that the city has allowed the police department to fall below the legally required complement 
of officers. They say we need more police. Yeah. You know, we need more police. And 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 the city made a motion to dismiss that case. That motion was denied last week. So it's now going forward in, in, in discovery. So so with this crime wave going on and and people, I'm telling you, I had some pictures taken to accompany my story in the upcoming American Spectator. Downtown Minneapolis, big chunk of it still boarded up, you know, boarded up from the riots and the looting that have taken place. Long stretch of Lake Street, which is about two miles away from downtown, you know, burned out, destroyed, boarded up. Nothing has been done. Nothing has been done to begin rebuilding that part of the city. Nobody wants to go into the city. I mean, there's nothing going on. The office buildings are empty. The restaurants are all closed. Well, now they have to be closed anyway. You walk down, you know, the the main streets in downtown Minneapolis, you see nothing but homeless people or, or little other than homeless people. You know, it's it's a, it's yeah. a very tough situation. And so uh, just last week, three members of the Minneapolis City Council introduced a proposal, a resolution, a measure to uh, partially defund the police department. Um, I forget what the dollar amount was, but, you know, by, by a substantial percent. And both the mayor and the chief of police responded by saying that that's untenable. You know, we can't maintain order in the city, yeah. uh, you know, with those kinds of cuts. Uh, we're already down, you know, a big number of officers. But that's what's going on. And so and so the voters in that city, in my opinion, need to get their act together and stop voting for people whose response to mass violence, looting and arson is to want to abolish the police department. Yeah, yeah. You've already lost a lot of police to early retirement, too, as I understand. Early it, right? retirement, disability, and right. just leaving, you know, go work somewhere else. And people are not signing up. Young people are not signing up to be. Well, a they, they canceled a year's worth of training sessions. So there's a year's um, worth of incoming officers that just won't happen. Yeah, that, this story could be told in other American cities, too, couldn't it? Um, you know, Portland, Seattle, I think, other uh, and other places. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's in, it's in the balance. Do you, you said, you know, you're not sure Minneapolis can recover truly. Well, truly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we got a problem, Bill, and this is another topic, but these things all, of course, at some, at some level, they all relate. Like I said earlier, you know, the twin cities used to be regarded as a, as a solid progressive and prosperous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Isn't true anymore. In the 21st century, because of high taxes and, you know, generally not very business friendly climate, uh, yeah. cities have turned into a below average um, economic engine. And so I have two economists working for the organization here, Center of the American Experiment, and they have written about this repeatedly. And I feel like Paul Revere, you know, trying to call yeah. uh-huh. attention to the fact that we got a problem. But if you look at the at the last 20 years, the 21st century, and what 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 my economists what one of my economists did was to take the year 2000. You can do a lot of things, but this is what I think is the most revealing. He identified the six metropolitan areas by federal definition with the next lowest GDPs for the metro area and the six metro areas with the next highest GDPs with the Twin Cities in the middle. So we've got a peer group. 
a peer group of 13 <laughs> metropolitan areas with similar gross domestic products. So we start them all in the year 2000. And then you go to the last year when data is available, which is 18 or 19, I forget which. And you chart GDP growth for those 13 metropolitan areas over the, that period of time, the 21st century. Well, it turns out that the Twin Cities metro area ranks 11th out of the 13 uh. economic growth in the 21st century. Uh. And you know who beats us, Bill? You know who's ahead of us? Baltimore. No. Baltimore. Wow. I looked at that and I said, are you kidding me? Really? Other really? Is growing slower than Baltimore's? Who are you ahead of? Um, Detroit. Yeah. I forget. Detroit and somebody else. Somebody else. And some some are way ahead of us. You know, uh, San Jose. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and you can say, well, that's not a fair comparison. Fine. But we are 11. Out of out of thirteen in a peer group, so so you know, if things start sliding downhill, right. you know that could turn into a bad situation pretty quickly. That's what I'm. My this is my fault. Yes, I understand. Downhill is trying to prevent that from happening. Your story reminds me back in the old old days when I was Secretary of Education. I went to Chicago, and I said these are the worst schools in the country. And they said, "Why do you say that?" And I said, you have a 50% dropout rate. And of the remaining 50% of the kids who stay in school, 60% of them score in the bottom 10% in the country. And this guy who's in the audience, works in the mayor's office. He was scribbling, scribbling, raised his hand. He said, Detroit's worse than us. I said, <laughs> I said good for you. You know, bully, bully, good for you. Yeah. I said, yeah, they got a 60% dropout rate. No, this is not to be nothing to be proud of i guess i don't want to draw this this great conversation to a close with a boring civics lesson but whether you're talking about the election or minneapolis uh the answer is the same people have to pay attention there's that great line in death of a salesman where uh linda loman says to the boys attention attention must be paid here to your father but Attention must be paid. Attention has to be paid to the mechanics of elections. Attention has to be paid to what's happening to your city. But then again, there are these shining examples like Larvita, McCorkar. So there is, uh, and that that encourages us because she encourages us by her example. And this woman's, you know, fighting against Samad. She's single, parent, right? Small town. She doesn't make a lot of money on Havens, right? Can't. Well, she can't possibly. No, no, the margins are always very small in these businesses anyway. Yeah, sure. And of course, she's been shut down. Yeah, and she right. points out, look, the government shuts me down, but they still make me pay my taxes. I know. You know, I mean, it really, at some fundamental level, I mean, it really is unfair. I know. Well, give us a word of encouragement. Maybe not in Minneapolis, maybe somewhere else or anything else. Center of the American experiment. I mean, people people do kind of know what's going on. I think this is one of the reasons that Donald Trump was elected, frankly. In 2016, people hated the stagnant uh, stuff that was well, going on. We may have more. I love to be on your show. Love to talk with you. I could do this all morning long, and, and I would happily. But 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 if we have to wrap it up, I guess I would say that one silver lining is the results of the 2020 election. You know, putting aside whatever did or didn't happen at the, in the presidential race, um, Republican candidates and conservative candidates uh, mounted a real comeback. 
going all the way down to the state legislatures. You know, the Democrats thought they're going to take over a bunch of state legislatures. They completely failed. Republicans took over two. You know, we were all appalled two years ago when the Republicans got wiped out in Orange County, you know, formerly the conservatives. Yeah, yeah. But we made a big comeback in Orange County. Yeah, yeah. Great. There are some great young women running as Republicans, yeah. you know, some minorities. Uh, one and, and several of them were in California. Another great example, Kim Kleisek. She didn't win in Baltimore, but boy, did she shake things up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of this kind of thing going on across the country at the grassroots level. And so I think if, if there's something to be encouraged about, it is that at the grassroots level, we really are waking up a lot of people. We're seeing a lot of new activism. And, and whatever happens with Donald Trump, I don't think the party is going to go back to what it was before. No, I agree. I, think, I agree. You know, I think it's going to be more activist. It's going to be more solidly middle class and working class. I yes, I agree. Be, you know, that's I, a good thing. That's a really good thing. Harder fighting. And I think we're seeing a real influx of some terrific young people. So, you know, uh, it's going to be a battle. You know, the other side uh, holds uh, holds a lot of the cards. You know, they've got the commanding heights. They they've worked their way through the institutions and now they control pretty much all of them, including big business. You know, I know. No, that's right. Um, that's right. But, uh, but we got a lot of people on our side who are fighting and want to continue fighting. Yeah. And and so I remain, you know, pretty optimistic. And let's focus on I was going to quote myself, but I don't like to do that. It was somebody else because I was quoting them anyway, but education, if we focus on failure, we'll get more failure. We focus on success, we'll get more success. We got to acknowledge the failures and point them out and shine a light on them, but then we got to focus on success. Larvita McQuarquar here, but well, and, and the good fight. But, but it's been in the back of my mind. You mentioned education before, obviously, something you've worked with for, you know, all your life. Um, and I want to bring it back to Minnesota uh, because. You know, we've always scored quite well in the state rankings. We're not like Detroit or Chicago. Our numbers no. are good. And, and the reason is we've had relatively small, you know, urban core populations. We're overwhelmingly white, you know. We score well for the same demographic reasons that North Dakota scores well, you yeah. know. Remember Moynihan on this? He said you need yeah. to be close to Canada. Right, exactly. More, more in America schools. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not because our schools are so great. But but right. in Minnesota, there's this pervasive belief that our public school system is just terrific. You know, we do a great job and the money we spend is well spent. And that's a hard, you know, hard oh, thing. Oh, yeah. However, and the other, another thing is in Minnesota, if you start talking to a liberal about spending less money and having lower taxes, less regulation, half the time the liberal will respond oh what do you want us to be like like mississippi like mississippi right. is the dregs right they're the losers yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah well i've got a i've got a fellow in my organization that that specializes in education and she's recently put out a paper that argues that the truth is that public education in minnesota is not particularly good right our, our, our record when you you know if you look at it in a little bit more sophisticated way it's not very good and one of the things there's been a lot of focus on here is the, is the education gap. And the gap is the difference between the performance of white students and the performance of students of color. We have one of the widest gaps in the yep. country, and it's getting worse. Well, my, my policy fellow, Katrin Wigfall, did some research. And guess who does a better job of educating their black students than Minnesota does based on uh, objective test scores? Mississippi. 
Mississippi. That's right. If you look at black students yeah. in the public schools in Mississippi, they're supposed to be so terrible. And black students in the public schools in Minnesota, they're supposed to be wow. so good. And you look at how they score in the same objective. Wow. Wow. Guess what? Theirs are scoring better than ours are. And their scores are going up and our scores are going down. So people in Minnesota should get off the high horse and start recognizing no no that kidding. what we're doing isn't working so well. And we should be willing to look around the country and say, well, you know what? These guys are having some pretty good success. I wonder how they do it. And Bill, you will not be shocked to learn how they do it. This is my kind of crude paraphrase. But the basic thing that they do in, in, in Mississippi that we don't do here in Minnesota, a lot of states don't do, they focus on reading. Reading right, right, because right, they understand right. if a kid can't read, he's screwed. That's it. What, what class? You know, how's he going to do well in anything if he can't read? Right. He's just going to get farther behind with every day that goes by. And so that the, the key thing they do is they, they in those lower elementary school grades right. where the main thing kids are doing is learned is learning to read. They identify the kids who are at risk, the kids who are not keeping up, the kids who are starting to fall behind, and they just work with them. They, yep. they just yep. work yep. with them. Yep. They don't yep. let them yep. fall behind. They just work with them and make sure that all those kids can read. Because as long as you can read, you got a chance. If you can't read, you're you going to no chance. every other class. You're going to fail in life, right? And so, and so that simple, old-fashioned uh tactic of identifying the kids who are who are starting to fail and just work with them one-on-one you know so yes sir yeah there was a fight in the uh 80s when i was there at secretary about expanding the curriculum and it went down into the early grades and i said we should actually shrink the curriculum uh reading if you get to the third grade and you can read competently and confidently that is sufficient uh, I'll, everything will fill in everything else. Turns out reading is not only a predictor of how well you can read in history, obviously. It's also a predictor of how well you can do in math. I didn't know that, but the research shows that. So you're absolutely right. The, the, the larger worry there, and I wanted to end on a positive note, but I guess I'm not going to, is that our schools are basically, even though the, it's better in Mississippi than Minnesota, they're still pretty bad internationally, really a bad. And Terrible. I'm doing some work on this now. We have, we have, we fell in a slump after 63 and we're going down and we still have not recovered from it. And, but there are LaVita McFarquhar's uh, out there. And one of them, and I wrote an essay on this was believe it or not, Massachusetts. I don't know if you know this story, but the Massachusetts miracle, the late nineties, early 20th century, uh, early 21st century. Um, If they had been a country, they would have been 10th in the world and they did it. The old-fashioned way was bipartisan, emphasis on reading, basic skills. Teachers had to pass a test, tough test, before they could get in the classroom. Anyway, that's another story, but that's gone now, too. So the reason I tell you this is kind of a confession here, Catholic, you know, confessing on air. I keep saying, open the schools, open the schools, and then when I get off air, I think, I don't know. I'm not, you know, what are they learning there? It's like the old sex ed thing. Someone told me, I think I'd rather have them learn it in the street than sex ed they teach in the schools. 
Absolutely. I agree with that. One, I'll close on a positive yeah, note. Please, please, please. One do. thing about shutting down the schools has happened in my state and most states because of COVID, and it's, it was totally wrong. But the silver lining is a lot of parents for the first time had to seriously think about alternatives to the public schools. And there's yeah. a lot of parents who are now seriously looking at homeschooling, yeah. schools, charter schools, neighborhood Learn, groups. Learning pods. You heard about the learning pods? Yeah, yeah. And I think some, some good might come out of this as a result. Yeah. We're, we're reinventing in some ways the small town, you know, one room schoolhouse where parents gather with teachers and kids. It's very interesting. Maybe that's going on in Lind. We'll take a look. Go ahead and drive that 248 miles. Take a picture. Send it to us. Have a drink on us. Send us the bill. Can you send me that article by Catherine? Is it Catherine? Uh, Catherine, yeah, her uh, her 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 uh, piece or her report, absolutely. Please send it to me. Thank you, John Hinderocker. All you do. Thanks for all you do. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye Bye bye. Well, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter, William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 